God, that's our intention this year, is to sing of your goodness. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. most of you since last year. Still fun saying that. Probably milk that for another couple of weeks at least. Um, years ago, just several years ago, in the last 10 years, I rediscovered one of my first loves. You know, it's been said that we often, part of discovering ourselves is going back to things that we loved when we were children. And one of the things I loved as a kid was writing. I love telling stories. I love writing stories. And I love to make people laugh and tell funny stories and all those sorts of things. Um, and so I, I got back into storytelling, and I started screenwriting. Now, as a part of that, I wrote a number of different things from short films and web series, uh, sitcom pilots. Most recently, a couple of friends of mine and I, we feast, uh, finished a feature film uh, script. And in fact, my friend Michael and I, we wrote a sitcom pilot uh, several years ago, and we entered it into an international screenwriting competition. And we didn't think any, like, there's no way it's going to go anywhere. Well, somehow, uh, we got in the top 10% of this international screenwriting competition. It's pretty, pretty crazy. One lesson I learned about screenwriting is that when you're writing, we have a tendency to tell too many details. And as screenwriters, you're taught to enter the scene as late as you possibly can and to exit the scene as early as you possibly can. And a great example of this is, is from one of the greatest underdog stories of all time, Tommy Boy. Now... Tommy's family, uh, Tommy is the underdog. He uh, works for his father. His father is Tom Callahan. And Tom found this beautiful young woman, and he married her. Tom is a little bit older. And we learned throughout the story, spoiler alert, it's like 25 years old or something, so hopefully I'm not ruining it for you. But she wants his money. It's kind of a ruse. But while they're at this wedding celebration, Tom and Tommy are singing, and they're doing this song, and Tommy walks away. And all of a sudden, we see Tom collapse. And it cuts to this place where we see Tommy's face as he leans over his dad, and the, the, the camera pans in right onto his face. And then it widens out to reveal that he and his family and his friends are in a cemetery. Now, a bad screenwriter does a thing called exposition. Would you say that with me? Exposition. Exposition is, is where you add too much information. You tell more than the reader needs to move the story forward. So in Tommy Boy, an example of exposition would be at the script when Tommy says, Dad, and he looks over him for then for him to pull out his phone, his cell phone, uh, and to call 911. And then what everybody's doing is they're eating, nervously waiting for the ambulance and all that sort of stuff. You don't need all that information. You see a good film and you see someone get a call and you see their face grow dark, and then it cuts to them in a cemetery. You know kind of what happened, right? Whereas you could string it out and have the whole conversation. You don't need that. That's called exposition. Good writers reveal just enough to show you what's important, to help you get to know the characters and the concepts and to move the story forward, and nothing more. And they take the reader or the viewer through snapshots. They don't tell you every little detail, all the things you can imagine. That's why we have imagination, so you can do that yourself. They tell you enough to tell a larger story. And a good storyteller leaves us wondering, 
what's next. Have you ever listened to someone telling a really good story and they're masterful and they leave you hanging before they tell the next part of the story? And what's the question that you might want to ask them? Well, and then what happened, right? Well, we're starting a brand new series today and it's called, And Then What Happened? Uh, because we're going to do that for the next 14 weeks. We're going to look through a story that's the most powerful story of all time. We're going to journey together as a church community through the gospel of Mark. Now, we almost called this the ADD gospel because it moves so rapidly from one thing to the next. Um, I was sitting with my friend Scott this week, and we were chatting, and he, he said, I'm going to ask you a question, and I, I don't mean this to be offensive, but are you a little bit ADD? And I said, yeah, absolutely I am. It's one of my superpowers. And we both kind of, kind of laughed. Maybe that's why I like the Gospel of Mark so much. There's no fluff. It's just this happened and this happened and, and all that sort of stuff. Mark uses words like immediately or just a second later or things like that constantly to keep the story moving. And the Gospel of Mark is a story that has all the elements of an incredible story. It has great character development. There's conflict. There's power struggles. There's redemption. Everything that makes a great story is in the Gospel of Mark. And so we decided as a, a writing team to spend some time, the first 14 weeks or so of the year, immersing ourselves in the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of the one who transforms us, the one who created all things, the, the one who invites you and I toward life. And our hope is that for all of us, whether you follow Jesus for a long time or you're a brand new follower of Jesus or you're in a place maybe where you're saying, I don't even follow Jesus, our hope is to, to let something be stirred deep within us. To, to learn to see Jesus with fresh eyes. Maybe to meet Jesus for some of us for the first time. And so for the next 14 weeks, we're going to do that. And here's, here's my hope in the next 14 weeks. We're going to look at snapshots of Mark. And here's what I think we can explore, what we can learn about three things. Number one, who Jesus is. So who is Jesus? I mean, do you really know who Jesus is? That's what we're going to be mining the riches of in this. Number two, what Jesus does. And then finally, what Jesus invites us into. That's what we're going to be doing for the next, uh, the next few weeks. Now, as you can imagine, we're not going to have time to go through every single verse because you guys don't want to be here for four hours every week. Um, uh, but we are going to look at some snapshots that reveal to us who Jesus is and what he's about and how he invites us to join in him with, with him for the renewal of all things. And we're also going to share some tips and, and tools for you to help you read the scriptures on your own. Because I don't want you to be dependent on a professional Christian telling you what you need to know. I want you to be able to read the scriptures for yourself and trusting the power of the Holy Spirit to teach you these things about Jesus. So I, I just want to encourage you. You may have heard a lot of these stories. And it might be really easy for you to gloss over what we're talking about and go, yeah, I've heard that story before. Yeah, I've heard that story before. But, but I'm going to ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to meet you in these passages and these stories and through the examples of what Jesus does and who he is and what he invites us into. And the hope in this, just like every series and every sermon that we do, is not just information, not just that you would walk away knowing more about the gospel of Mark, but that you would be formed, that it would be formation, that the gospel would permeate every part of your being as you seek to live in his way with his heart. So, Let's pray before we dive in. Lord, I just pray that you would meet us in the pages of Scripture. Jesus, as we study the Scriptures to see who you are and what you've done, would you help us to see you? Holy Spirit, illuminate truth. Permeate our hearts. 
expose our faulty ways of thinking, ways that we've seen things that aren't true. Show us truth. Help us to live in your way with your heart. And I ask all these things in the strong, powerful name of Jesus. And together we said, amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn in the scriptures to Mark chapter 1 in your Bibles or go online, go through our app. Um, and, and while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background of the gospel of Mark. The early church fathers believed that the gospel of Mark was written by uh, a man named John Mark and that John Mark was the writer for Peter, that the apostle Peter that you know of, the one who chopped the guy's ear off and all that sort of stuff, that he had this writer who wrote down his recollection, his story, his first-hand eyewitness account of Jesus the Messiah, and, that, and we see that he wrote this. So most early church fathers believe that the apostle Peter is the one that sort of passed along the story of Jesus. And it's, it's widely believed that Mark wrote it uh, while in Rome. We know that Peter was in Rome in the early 50s, not the 1950s, but like 1900 years before that. And the Gospel of Mark is the earliest written gospel. Uh, there are a lot of different uh, arguments about when it was written from the 40s to the 90s, but most scholars would say it was written between the mid-50s and the mid-60s. And it was also used by Luke and Matthew uh, as sort of source material in their gospel. Mark was written to a Gentile Christian audience, meaning not native Jews, not born Jews, people like you and me, probably to the church in Rome, uh, but it obviously had long ramifications and it completely applies to us today. Last thing I want to say is that the gospel of Mark is often called a passion narrative. Passion narrative is about the, the final days, the, re, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's often called a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Because the whole second half of the book is pushing toward the cross. And so I want you to catch this, that as we journey together for the next 14 weeks, we're going to end right before Easter. So we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark leading right up to Easter. I'm really excited about that. What I want to do today is I want to give us a quick summary of what happened in Mark chapter 1. I'm not going to, like I said, go through everything. And if you want to take out your phones and take a picture of this next slide, I didn't put it in the bulletin because I didn't want it to be 14 pages long. But this is kind of, and then what happened? This is what we see in Mark chapter 1. We see that John the Baptist comes and prepares the way. And then Jesus is baptized and he's tempted in the wilderness. And then he goes to Galilee and begins sharing the good news. And then we see that he calls his first disciples and he casts out an impure spirit. Don't see that every day. Uh, he heals a bunch of people. He spends time alone. And finally, Jesus heals a fellow with leprosy. Now do you understand why we almost called this the ADD gospel? A lot happens in one little chapter of 45 verses. It's pretty wild. And so what I want to do is drill down on three big picture ideas that we can see who Jesus is, what he does, and what he invites us into. The first part of the chapter I'm not going to look at today. I taught uh, the second week of Advent, I think that was December 8th, about John the Baptist and what his mission was, how he prepared the way for Jesus. And if you didn't listen to that talk or you want a refresher, go back on our podcast or our website and listen to that. Um, we talked about it the second week of Advent. But I do want to start in verse 14 and 15. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, and what was he proclaiming? The good news. He was the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe what? The good news. So this is powerful. Bless you. Again, uh, 
don't miss this. This is the first thing that we see Jesus saying to other people. This was his message. And what was the message of Jesus? It was the, the good news. That comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means uh, it's evangelism. It is the good news. It is the gospel. Now listen, when you think about the gospel and think about what it is, a lot of us have different ideas about what the good news really is. In the tradition that I grew up in, the good news was God is so pure and so holy and so perfect that he cannot look upon humans because they are sinful. And if we will, if we, we will burn in hell if we don't accept Jesus into our hearts. How many of you grew up with some version of that as the gospel? It's okay, you can raise your hand. So I won't, you won't burn in hell for raising your hand about hearing that. Okay, um, here's the thing. I don't know about you, but as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid, hearing that as the version of the good news, it didn't really sound like good news to me. It made me feel like I was a grasshopper and God was holding up a, a, you know, a magnifying glass between me and the sun. That was kind of scary. So the thing is, we see from the Jewish scriptures that for millennia, the Jewish people, they were waiting, the nation of Israel, they were waiting for the kingdom of heaven to be established. God promised through the Old Testament scriptures that he had a throne. He would establish his king on his throne for all of eternity. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, you have these people that are longing, like we talked about in Advent, where they, the world was a mess. The world was, they were an occupied people. They hadn't heard from God in a long time. They were desperate for God's kingdom to reign. So Jesus shows up on the scene, and, and what is his message? Accept me in your heart, and you go to heaven. Did Jesus say that? He didn't say that. Look at it again. What does he say? The time has come. What does it say? What is the message of Jesus? The kingdom of God has come near. Read that with me. The kingdom of God has come near. That is the message of Jesus. It's really interesting. The word come is used repeatedly throughout this chapter to indicate movement, that God is calling something from one place to another. Pay attention to that as we go. I love how Eugene Peterson in the message uh, translation, he, he says it this way. He says, time's up. Meaning, the thing you've been longing for, the, the, the time when the Messiah, the King comes, all of that that you've been hoping for, it's now. It's not in the future. It's not someday. It's not hopefully it'll happen. He's proclaiming it's now. See, the passage says he goes into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, and we don't have to wonder what the good news is because he's clearly saying the scripture the, the time that the scripture talked about, well, it's here. The kingdom is here. And not only that, the king is here. And then what else is he saying and demonstrating throughout this chapter? He is that king. See, God's kingdom is a benevolent kingdom. You know, not every kingdom is a benevolent, kind, good-willed kingdom. And God's king is one in which God's perfect reign is established. And it, it means that things move from bleak, dark outlook to moving towards shalom, God's good and perfect peace, God's good and perfect plan. And so as Jesus begins to speak of this kingdom, he, he sets the stage to demonstrate what this kingdom was going to be all about, that God was with his people and he was making all things new. That's good news, isn't it? And I would say, if you watch the 5 o'clock news or the 9 o'clock news or look at the news app on your phone, it's good news for us today, isn't it? 
that there is a king and there is a kingdom and that he is doing something about the craziness that we often see, the brokenness, the darkness. He is dispelling the darkness. It started. Jesus was saying, it's on. Time's up. Here we go. That's what was happening. And so what we learn from this, the first observation, is that Jesus clarified the good news and extended an invitation. Jesus got clear about what the good news was. See, right in that verse, we don't have to guess. He tells us, he said he went and preached uh, the good news, and then he tells us what the good news is. But the good news is super easy to get wrong. And see, we've often reduced the good news to have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. I mean, the church that I grew up in, you, you didn't hear people openly talking about the kingdom of God pairing with Jesus. What you heard about was come down at the end of a service, repent of your sin, pray the sinner's prayer, and now you get to go to heaven when you die and narrowly avoid the gates of hell. I'm not just saying that as a, character, a characterization. It really, that's literally the words that I heard. And I traveled all around this country working with some really talented speakers. But a lot of those speakers, that was the message. I want to bring it to a point where you repent and you turn and you say this prayer. But, but the problem is all too often we've made the good news about personal salvation. Listen to what scholar, professor, and author Scott McKnight says about this. He says, I believe the word gospel has been hijacked by what we believe about personal salvation, and the gospel itself has been reshaped to facilitate making decisions. I want you to make a decision for Christ tonight. The results of this hijacking is that the word gospel no longer means in our world what it originally meant to either Jesus or the apostles. I'm convinced that because we think the gospel is the plan of salvation, and because we preach the plan of salvation as the gospel, we're not actually preaching the gospel. Let me just tell you, as someone who's up here preaching to you, that's terrifying to me to think that I could go years thinking I'm preaching the gospel to people and not actually be preaching the gospel. He says, our contemporary equation of the word gospel with the plan of salvation came about because of developments from and after the Reformation. See, the Enlightenment caused us to think legally, judicially, to think about transactionally and not relationally. So here's how he frames it. The gospel is the work of God to restore humans to union with God and communion with others in the context of a community for the good of others and the world. That sounds like good news to me. How about you? See, Jesus clarified the good news. He, he said that, it was, that the time had come, uh, that the kingdom was near. McKnight says in an illustration in one of his books that he was in an airport, and he ran into a well-known large church evangelical pastor, and he said, what is the gospel? And the person said, that's easy, it's justification. That is the gospel. And so Scott McKnight said, did Jesus preach that? And he said, no, Paul was the first one to get it right. Yeah. I would think we would want to listen to what Jesus has to say about the gospel. <laughs> Call me crazy, but I'm just saying, let's start there. So I love McKnight's summary where he says, the gospel is the work of God to restore humans to union with God and communion with others in the context of community for the good of others and the sake of the world. That is shalom. That is God's good and perfect peace. And my friends, that is the gospel. So when we reduce and we boil down the gospel to say a prayer and get out of hell, we're missing the big picture of what the gospel is intended to demonstrate, which is the king is here. You don't need a king if the gospel is just a personal relationship with Jesus. You just need a savior. But the scriptures didn't just pro, uh, you know, pro, uh, promise 
a, a, a savior. It promised a king, that God's good and perfect kingdom was breaking forth into all of the world. That's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. And so Jesus clarified that that was actually the good news, that we don't have to wait until someday or until we die to experience the goodness of God. We have to wait till we die and go to heaven and be with the Lord. The Lord is present with us. Did you know that? The Lord is in this room right now. The Lord is within you. The Holy Spirit of God is within you. You don't have to wait till utopia when you die to experience the Lord, that the kingdom is now. And it wasn't until I got out of the, um, the very traditional denomination that I was in, and I started doing some events in some charismatic groups, and they talked constantly about the kingdom. And it was weird, like, oh, why are you guys always talking about the kingdom? 20 years later, now I get it. Because the Savior is a Savior, but he's also a king. And his kingdom is good. Jesus is working toward the renewal of all things. So he, he says that, but then he also gives an invitation. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. And then the invitation is what? Repent and believe the good news. What was his invitation? Say it with me. Repent and believe. And just like we talked about in Advent, this idea of repent. Often people think that, that repent means to turn from my sin. And that's true, that we should turn from our sin. But sometimes the word repent literally means to change the way that we think. And sometimes the way we think isn't necessarily inherently sinful. It's just not God's best plan for us. It doesn't necessarily move us toward wholeness. And so Jesus is saying, turn from the direction you're going. Hey, I'm announcing over here the kingdom is breaking forth. So you're going this particular direction, and it's probably with good intentions and not necessarily bad, and not always sinful. Yes, there are blatant sin, but not always sinful. But turn and head in the direction. Go with the stream of the kingdom, because it's the benevolent kingdom. The king is here. He's doing good and amazing things. And he asks us then to believe the good news. And all these years later, 2,000 years later, the message of the gospel, the good news, is still the same. The kingdom of heaven is here. And the invitation is the same. Repent, turn from those ways. Some sinful, some just not the right direction. Orient everything toward the way of Jesus. Turn away from patterns of living that don't move you toward wholeness. Turn away from relationships that don't move you toward wholeness. Turn away from thinking that doesn't move you toward the wholeness in Christ. But believe that the kingdom of God is here and turn towards it and live in his way with his heart. See, the first part, Jesus clarifying the good news and giving an invitation, it's really, really important that we start here at verse 14 and 15 because if you miss this, you'll miss what God is trying to do in all the rest of the gospel of Mark because the whole rest of the gospel is unpacking what that kingdom looks like and what Jesus is all about and who he is and what he invites us into. And if you don't understand what, what the good news is, and if you don't understand what repent means, and if you don't believe in the good news, you're going to miss so many riches throughout the rest of the world. Are you with me? So for some of us reading the scriptures, it's, a, it's an intellectual exercise in taking mental notes or concepts. But early on in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus setting a tone for who he is and, and what he's doing and what he invites us into. He invites us to be beautiful subjects in his beautiful kingdom, this incredible new way of thinking and living. And, and that's why we have this mission statement that is kingdom-centric, to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. He is the king. We want to live as subjects in his king, in kingdom, in his way, with his heart. That's the way of the kingdom. And so first part, Jesus clarifies the good news, and he invites people to respond to it. The second thing that we see in this chapter is that, that Jesus demonstrates his intentions and his authority. 
If, if the good news, if the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, then Jesus demonstrates what he intends the kingdom to look like throughout the rest of this chapter. And we start seeing a tone of what the kingdom is about. So he, he casts out an impure spirit. He heals a lot of people. He heals a man with leprosy. And he shows that his intention is to bring healing, to bring shalom and wholeness to people. That is his intention. That's the, the way of the kingdom. And, and he taught, um, the way that he taught demonstrated that he had the authority to back up what he was saying about the kingdom, meaning he could actually bring to pass what he was saying the kingdom was all about. Look at verse 21 through 27. Jesus goes to Capernaum to the synagogue, and he starts to teach. And in verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, but not as teachers of the law. I'm sure this is very much how you feel when I teach, just amazed, minds blown. Um, I'm kidding. But see, Jesus didn't carry himself the way the teachers of the law did. See, they had no authority. They were simply commenting on what the law had to say. They were commenting on the scriptures, kind of like me. I don't have on my own authority. I'm reading the scriptures. I'm telling you, this is what the scriptures say. And here's what scholars have to say. Uh, I didn't write the scriptures. I know that might be a surprise to you. I did not. Jesus was talking as one who did, who embodied the scriptures, who authored the scriptures. And then... Later, we start seeing instances where um, uh, Jesus doesn't just demonstrate his authority by the way that he spoke, right? He, he did carry himself a certain way as he taught, but then he backed it up by healing, by setting people free, by challenging systems that weren't honoring to the kingdom of God. Verse 23, if you've never read this story before, this might blow, blow your mind. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus gets on to them. He says, Be quiet. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Can you imagine if that happened in this room? If you have an impure spirit that you need to cast out, go to another church and get it out and then come back because I don't want to freak everyone out, you know, if this happens in here. In verse 29 through 34, Jesus goes to the home of Simon and Andrew. He had already called them earlier in the chapter. And uh, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and so he healed her. And as you might imagine, as someone comes and starts to heal people, others would hear about that and want to be healed also. Look in verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. It's still so crazy to me that that just is, Mark is just saying it just factually. You know, all the, all the sick and the demon-possessed came on over to the house. That sounds like Thanksgiving in some families. I'm just saying. Verse 33 the whole town gathered at the door. I, I get irritated when someone comes to the door to try to sell me something. The whole town comes to the door. And verse 34, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, listen, it's easy to read a story like this and just think, oh, that's just a, sto- that's just a nice story that tells us some story-like stuff about Jesus. But remember, Mark isn't presenting this as just some fictional story. He's presenting it as a narrative account of what happened because Peter lived through this, right? Um, Jesus exercised his authority by silencing those impure spirits he cast out. He healed lots of people. 
And we can see by this point in Mark that a crowd is starting to follow him because, because he's not only proclaiming the good news, he's not only saying that the kingdom is here and that the king is here, he's not just saying that, he's demonstrating what the kingdom would be like by healing and moving things toward wholeness as so people are responding and a crowd starts to form. And finally, in verses 40 through 45, a man with a leprosy literally got on his knees in front of Jesus and begged and asked Jesus, would you please heal me? And leprosy was a terrible disease. Literally, parts of skin and flesh decayed. Literally, parts of the body flaked off. Even a, a hand could eventually, you could, lose, you could lose all these things, have open sores and all these sorts of things. And a religious person wouldn't be caught near a person with leprosy. But listen, I think one of the takeaways from this is that as Jesus is teaching us about this kingdom, as he's setting this foundation for what the kingdom was about, he was showing that the kingdom of heaven is very inclusive, not very exclusive. See, we like to have us versus them. We like to think very black and white and say, well, you're in and you're out. You're on my team. You're not on my team. But Jesus went to people that the religious people of the day didn't want to have anything to do with and said, you've got a seat at the table. And he healed him instantly. And then Jesus gives him some instructions, which he promptly ignored. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. For whatever reason, Jesus is sort of saying, it's not time for me to fully be revealed. So don't go out and proclaim. Don't tweet about this. Don't put on Facebook. Don't tell anybody. Just go through your ceremonial ritual here. Go do that. And the guy was like, yeah, that sounds really nice. But instead, he goes out and he starts spreading the news. And he's telling everybody. He tweeted it. He put it on Facebook. All those things. And because of that, he could no longer enter a town openly because everybody wanted to see him. And he stayed outside in lonely places, yet people still came from everywhere. And I've often wondered what it would feel like to be a celebrity. This is why I wanted to be a screenwriter, because nobody knows who you are and you're still rich. If you're, a, if you're an actor, <laughs> it's true, or a songwriter, it's the same thing. If you're the performer, everybody wants a piece of you. If you're the writer behind the scenes, you still got lots of money, but nobody knows who you are. I was listening to an interview with Paul McCartney from the Beatles uh, one time a few years ago, and he was talking about how in the 60s when the Beatles exploded, after they made it big in America, they, they were worldwide sensations, and they couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed. And so, like, if you look at the movie Hard Day's Night, how many, anybody seen that? At the very beginning, they're being chased like crazy. That's how it really was, and it still is. You see a video of him. He's 78 years old almost, and he goes anywhere in the world, and he gets bombarded. So anyway, in the 60s, Paul McCartney liked to party, liked to go out and have fun. He was in Paris, and he was trying to get away from the crazy crowd, and so he had this disguise. And he put this disguise on, and he goes to the, one of the most popular nightclubs in Paris, and he goes to the door, and they won't let him in, because he's not Paul McCartney. He's the, he's got, you argue with me, he's got this disguise on. He was really frustrated because he wanted to go in and party. So he went back to his hotel and he took off his disguise and then drove back as Paul McCartney and immediately, wee, wee, come on in. And they let him go right on in there. That's sort of what it was like for them, that they couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed. And we see because Jesus was so powerful, because his news was so good, because he was healing, that that's sort of what happened with him, that crowds were forming like crazy uh, in response to this. And I have to be honest as I've thought about this. I wonder why churches aren't exploding more. The church is exploding around the world in countries where Christianity is oppressed. But in places like America where we're free to say what we want and to think what we want, often we don't see that. And I have to wonder if the average person believes that this Jesus that, that did those things that we're talking about wants to bring healing and wholeness to them. 
I wonder if we've forgotten that the same God that, that chased Adam and Eve down in the garden, remember when they sinned, this perfect, pure, and holy God did what? He ran after Adam and Eve. He put clothes together for them. Uh, the same God who parted the sea so the nation of Israel could pass through it. The same God who called people, these fishermen, from sketchy backgrounds and put them in a position of leadership. The same God who established his throne forever. I wonder if we've forgotten that that same God is still at work today, who is moving and shaping all the creation. Even as I speak right now, every fiber of the universe is being pulled toward what God's intention for it. Is. I wonder if we've forgotten that. And if we truly understood this, that God's kingdom is real and that it's breaking forth, how could we be silent about the good news? And if we truly understood this, how could we not look at those people who are not like us and take their hand and say, follow me as I follow Jesus? What's the breakdown? See, these aren't just stories, friends. These are examples from the scriptures of the real Jesus, the real stories of Jesus um, that set the tone for what he was all about and who he is, and it's still relevant today. And my hope is that you'd read these and realize that Mark is showing us that Jesus' intention is to be involved, that when we're hurting, he's with us. I love that John eleven thirty five every kid's favorite memory verse because it's so short. It says, Jesus wept. The king wept with his people because Lazarus had died. His friend passed away. Jesus' intention is to bring healing where there's brokenness and to, to push back the forces of darkness. The king is here. So Jesus clarifies the good news and invites us to repent and believe it, which means to reorient our lives around it instead of putting it on uh, us, but reorienting us around it. And he demonstrated that his intentions for the kingdom were benevolent. He was gracious and kind. It was the kind of kingdom that would set people free, that it would renew all of creation, and that he had the authority to make his kingdom that he spoke about a reality. And then finally, the third thing that we can sort of take away is that Jesus builds a foundation for his ministry. We got to remember that Jesus is God, but Jesus is God in the flesh, and that he was one person. He wasn't everywhere all at once, and he started the work of this ministry. And we see from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus did a lot. I mean, look, chapter one, there's like eight things there, eight different vignettes of what's happening. So he did a lot, but he also set up the foundation so that the kingdom would break forth, not just him having to go everywhere. Um, he wanted to make sure that it broke forth into all the creation. And so, so one of the ways that he did that was he began by building his team. Jesus obviously is incredibly powerful. He could speak things into existence. I don't know why he chose not to just speak everything into existence and make it all right then, but he chose to start calling disciples, ordinary, average people, to do it with him. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. See, I love that he called ordinary, average people to follow him. The only difference between them and us is they smelled like fish. And if you go fishing, you'd smell like one of the disciples. No big deal. Jesus said, come follow me. And notice the intensity of Mark here as he, he sort of denotes the time. He says what? At once. Not two days later, not a month later, but at once, what'd they do? They dropped their nets 
and they followed him. We're going to see a little bit later in Mark that those same people that were his first disciples are the, are the disciples that he called to be in his inner circle. But more importantly, that he didn't just ask them to follow him. He empowered them to raise people from the dead and to heal the sick and to drive out demons as well. See, he was setting a foundation for his ministry so that the kingdom would continue to break forth. And, and what's crazy, if you really think about it, is that we are heirs, we're beneficiaries of this, but we're also heirs in this process. That he's calling us also to be those same people, to come follow me, but also to heal people, to tell them about the kingdom, to pull them along. Isn't it cool that God invites us into that process all these years later? So he invited them to join in his work of releasing the kingdom and the way of kingdom in all of creation. And those, those humble fishermen, ordinary people, just like us, and he used them to do incredibly powerful things. And listen to me. Imagine what it would be like if we could believe that God wants to use us, that Jesus is calling us, not just the professional Christians like me who get paid to work at a church. I'm talking about the average person who follows Jesus. What if God wanted to use you to bring forth the power of the kingdom, the renewal of all things to Littleton and beyond? That might sound crazy to you, but it's true. God has wired you and equipped you to partner with him, and he's still building his team. So every week when you serve here and you're passing out a service guide or working in the tech booth or volunteering in kids or student ministries or you're singing or whatever it might be, you're part of his team. When you go out and you serve in this community, you're part of his team. When you gather with Watchmen on a Wednesday night and you're praying, you're summoning God's kingdom to break forth in this city, you're part of his team. See, he continues to build his team. The other thing is he engages in a practice that helps him stay connected to God. Look at verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So crowds had been pursuing Jesus uh, like crazy throughout Mark. And we see that crowds really started to build. You might not know this, but I'm actually an introvert. And uh, back in the day, uh, I'm what someone called an, a vocational extrovert, meaning I can be extroverted when I'm working and with people. And I love people and I love being around people, but I'd rather just hang out with a small group of people. And in the olden days, back in the Stone Age, when I traveled around the country leading worship, I, I led worship in really large events with lots and lots of people. And it sounds lots of fun. I, had, I was in front of large crowds on a regular basis. And, and while I enjoyed it, I also got fatigued after leading worship or speaking in front of all these crowds. And I can tell you my band would always love afterward, all these people would come up and want to talk. And I wanted to go like to the trailer and start like rolling mic cables or to get out of there or go back to my hotel and get away and recharge my batteries. Again, introvert. I can be around people. I love people, but I also needed some time to recharge my batteries. I can also tell you that it's really easy to be enamored by success. When people like you and they're glad you're there and they praise you, you can get really enamored in that. It's really easy to uh, get caught up into what success is and lose sight of God, and especially as an itinerant speaker or worship leader, to stop spending quality time with God, but just to phone it in for the sake of the gig. I love what we see here that Jesus is modeling, that he, he prioritized staying connected to God by getting alone and praying. I recently read this book by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. He, he talked about this. It's, it's easy to look at people that are super saints and to think, well, to be super spiritual and to be like Jesus, I have to get up at 3 a.m. and pray for hours. How many of you have felt the pressure to get up super early because you think that's a spiritual thing to do? Okay. Comer reminds us that before electricity, 
And before light bulbs, listen, the average person slept 11 hours a night. 11 hours. That's like teenager hours, okay? 11 hours a night. See, we see all these super saints from all of history getting up early to spend time with God, but it's not hard to get up early when you went to bed at 5 p.m. So if you go off and you go to Luby's and have a 3 o'clock dinner, you watch the 4 o'clock news, you're asleep by 5, no wonder you wake up at 2 or 3 a.m. If I go to bed before midnight, I wake up at 5.30 in the morning. That's just how my body is wired. See, the point here is this. It's not to do exactly what Jesus did, that for you, a practice to connect with God, you must get up, get away from everybody, and you must do it at 3 a.m. That's not what I'm trying to say. For some of us, it's about finding what practice helps us stay connected to God. For some of you, that's getting up early and praying, and that's fine. For others, it's reading the scriptures. For others, it's going in nature. For others, it's journaling. For others, it's taking a scripture and meditating on it. And I love that Jesus, despite all the crowds and all the stuff that was happening there and all the hurriedness, he prioritized connection with God. And I think it's also interesting that the book of Matthew or Mark, the ADD gospel, bam, 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 all the hurriedness that we see that in, you know, immediately this and that, that Jesus stands as a stark contrast in the middle of it all. He wasn't bothered by the pace. He wasn't hurried. He refused to let what everybody else wanted for him to hurry him. So Jesus built a foundation for his ministry by building a team and by staying connected to God. And then finally, by staying focused on his mission. See, Jesus pulled away and went into solitude. And he was praying and the crowds were going crazy. And Simon and others came to him and frantically said, people are looking for you. People want to see you. And of course they were. He was God 